This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in today. Today is going to be part two of our conversation with Chuck Haggard. Chuck Haggard is a longtime law enforcement officer and he's also a self-defense instructor. He's got a business called Agile Training and Consulting. You can find him at agiletactical.com. One thing Chuck's well known for is instructing people on the use of OC spray. That's pepper spray. Uh, He teaches in terms of uh, law enforcement and in civilian self-defense. And last time we were speaking to Chuck, uh, our conversation ended with a conversation about how pepper spray, uh, as opposed to practically any other type of self-defense weapon, is socially acceptable to be displayed in public. That is, uh, you could carry it in your hands while you traversed a dark and remote parking lot at night and you wouldn't attract negative attention. In fact, we're going to start our conversation out today about that as a tactic, uh, using pepper spray to negotiate what Chuck calls transitional spaces, places like parking lots where you could be more prone to an assault. We're going to look at the different types of OC spray, cone-shaped mists, streams, gels, and foams. We're going to talk about the goal of using pepper spray. In fact, the goal of all self-defense, which is to break contact with an attacker, to turn the fight off so to speak. We'll talk a little bit about uh, personal space and setting boundaries and enforcing those boundaries if they're not respected. OC spray plays a part in that. The value of uh, verbal commands in a potential assault situation. How to train with pepper spray. They make inert products that allow you to uh, experiment with the different formats to find out what works best for you. And the overriding theme here is that uh, using a little bit of force early in a self-defense scenario can keep you from using a lot of force later. And um, after you've been through this conversation, I hope you'll agree that having pepper spray or OC spray as part of your self-defense toolkit is something that every armed defender should consider. We'll be joined by Steve Moses, firearms instructor and CCW Safe contributor. Also, Don West, he's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a veteran criminal defense attorney. Uh, thanks again for listening in. Here's our conversation with Chuck Haggard. So, Chuck, Steve also tells us when we've talked to Steve that part of navigating that. Uh, uncomfortable encounter is, is one like demonstrating that you're not an easy victim for this perpetrator and ha- having a, some pepper spray out and ready to go is not a bad way to start demonstrating that you're not an easy picking yeah uh, it, it sure I, I believe that it is uh, <laughs> you know if you look at uh, predation behavior in nature uh, it is well, one, it's these transitional spaces that, you know, where do, where do the lions on the plains of Serengeti go to uh, wait for food? They don't randomly wander around. They go sit at the water holes and things like that where they have, you know, more selection to look at. 
And then what, part of what they look at is, you know, are they going to chase the full-sized, uh, in his prime Cape Buffalo that can put up a fight, or are they going to chase that one over there that looks a little older and he's got a limp? Uh, you know, they're going to they're going to go after the guy with the limp. So they're they're looking for most criminal assaults are a transaction, and they are using you for something like a human ATM. So there is a cost-benefit analysis that goes into this sort of behavior, and nobody walks up and snatches a purse because they believe, you know, if, if they look over there and they're like, you know what, I bet that little old lady's going to shoot me if I try to grab her purse, they're probably not going to try to grab her purse. Uh, you know, if they're walking up to me to do what the, you know, this is a financial transaction to them. If now all of a sudden they're going to get covered in pepper spray and somebody's going to put up a fight, they're going to go look elsewhere for, for an easier target. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my friends that's sadly no longer with us, uh, William April, who famously talked about, uh, part of what a street encounter can be is basically an interview. You're being interviewed for the position of robbery victim, let's say. Uh, and what you want to do is fail the interview, as uh, William used to say. Okay. Uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, you're a great white shark, and you're swimming through the ocean, and you see a whale. Is the whale taking a nap, or did the whale die of a heart attack? Do you have a buffet to choose from, or are you going to get your butt kicked? So what do sharks do? They go bump their prey to see if it's going to put up a fight, to see if it's going to be dangerous because, you know, they don't want to get hurt or killed when what they want is easy pickings. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit about how you navigate this encounter now. You're, you're committed to this less lethal option. You've got your OC spray. And, and I think when I ask you to set up this scenario for us. I'd love for you to explore, Chuck, when is OC a good option and when does it cease to be a, a good option tactically? So, Hey, uh, Sean, before we go any further, I'd like to insert something. I'd love it, Steve, please. Okay. Uh, I would like Chuck to come back and revisit uh, the four common types of spray, uh, the aerosol, uh, the stream, uh, the gel and the foam, and talk specifically about the advantages and disadvantages of each uh, for a concealed carrier, especially, uh, you know, kind of based on where they may think they're most likely to use it. For instance, uh, am I likely to use that in a club? Am I likely to use that in a church, et cetera? So, Chuck, would you do that, please? No, most certainly. So, uh I started out my career with probably with the, the most ubiquitous type of early spray was the cone-shaped mist. It comes out in kind of a fog pattern, and it, it actually accomplishes what people think shotguns accomplish in that it spreads out real wide and you can hit a target very easily. So cone-shaped mist tends to be effective on the street four to six feet away, which is you know interpersonal violence distance uh, right outside the edge of where somebody can assault you. Uh, so tends to work real well. You can engulf somebody's face and head with a cloud of pepper spray and hit them in both eyes. It affects their respiratory tract, causes coughing uh, real bad, uh, causes a lot of uh, inflammation to the face and, and, and the eyes and mucous membrane. So it tends to be almost instantly effective and uh, it's very easy to get an effective hit with. Uh, 
it it can uh, be used in in uh, other scenarios that, uh, that when I'm when I'm talking about different things in classes. Uh, but one of the the it depends on how you use it. Some things people look at uh, it's neither a bug nor a feature. It's just how it how it applies to your scenario at hand. Uh, cone shaped mist is more affected by crosswind, which uh, we get a lot of here in Kansas and, and some other places. Uh, so uh, that can affect your reach with it or where it goes after you spray it. If you, uh, if you uh, really misjudge and you spray directly into a strong headwind, then that's going to be a situation that uh, you're probably going to quickly regret. So uh, it tends to be very, very effective and what I've used for most of my law enforcement career. Streamer is a much more cohesive uh, stream, tends to have longer range, it's much uh, more target specific, tends to stick to what you hit, what you sprayed, will off gas and have some respiratory effect, uh, not quite as much as a cone-shaped mist. Uh, you have to have more accuracy to make it effective in that you have to aim for the, the bad guy's eyes and you have to hit him in both eyes ideally for it to be really effective. Um, some possibility of cross-contamination if you have bystanders but much less than with a cone-shaped mist. And then you have the gels and the foams which I kind of lump a little bit together. Uh, gels tend to act like a streamer except they don't off-gas at all. They don't have any respiratory effect. What they're made to do is stick to the target and uh, and not uh, have any bystander effect. These have been utilized by a lot of people such as uh, hospital security and, and people like that where you really don't want to have any bystander involvement because of the nature of the venue you're in. Uh, personally, I'm not a fan of gels because I note that they tend to have a very delayed reaction. I've personally been sprayed with uh, gel spray in, in training. I've utilized it on uh, students in training tends to have a very slow effect kicking in. Uh, the other one is foam. Basically it, it comes out in sort of a splatter. It's not, when people think foam, they think shaving cream or something like that. It's, it's a real wet foam. It uh, almost, uh, almost it turns into a thick liquid very shortly after hitting the target. But it has a physical effect if you hit a bad guy in the eyes of having a physical a barrier to their vision like you put a blindfold on them with the added effect of uh, pepper spray. So you have the pepper spray effect which causes involuntary eye closure, uh, um, infl inflammatory response, things like that. And a couple of the pepper product, pepper foam products uh, can be really good products. Again, no respiratory effect at all. Uh, it, it is concentrated on the one person that you sprayed. So I recommend those for, uh, like I've worked with clients who are hospital security, who are jail staff, uh, things like that, where um, they want to give up the respiratory effects of the spray so that they can ensure that, you know, bystanders or part of their clientele aren't affected by any of the respiratory effects. That's interesting. So, so, and we talked a little bit earlier about you know, law enforcement's been using OC spray for a long time. Now the civilian defender market is aware of OC spray. There's different priorities, right? Law enforcement uh -huh. may be subduing someone that they are going to have to arrest. As a civilian defender, what's the goal in using pepper spray? 
Uh, I would say breaking contact. Uh, if you can, let's say you're about to be physically assaulted or purse snatched or a strong arm robbery or some sort of uh, whatever caused the justified response for you to pepper spray that person, what that allows you to do is not have to fist fight that person because you can, you can spray them at a distance outside of fist fighting range and then allow you to break contact without, without making physical contact with that person and, and get away to safety. That's the whole point of it. So we're not trying to win a fight here. We're trying to avoid a fight. Uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to turn the fight off. Uh, a, a term that I picked up a long time ago, um, and I'm not sure where, was that OC tends to take the fight out of the fighter. So uh, if they, if they want to punch us in the face and now we give them a face full of pepper spray, it gives them something else to think about while we uh, you know, evacuate the area. So if I'm being approached by somebody that I suspect means me harm, what what does this look like? How, how does as this gap closes, when do I deploy the OC spray? What's its effective operational range, and what are the tactical considerations that I want to think about here? Well, depending uh, depending on which spray you chose, you can have a little little bit of range uh, variables, and then environmental conditions. You know how how hard is the wind blowing? Things like that can ha certainly have an effect. But even with the cones and the the streams, that most people are going to be utilizing this stuff somewhere between four and eight feet away. Uh, so just outside the range of uh, somebody's ability to punch you in the face, uh, which is where you want it to be, because when you think about eight feet away is the outside of uh, social dis—I don't mean social distancing in the in the COVID era, but say if you're going to walk up to a stranger and you don't want to invade their airspace, as it were, say you're going to ask them for directions or, sir, can you tell me what time it is? You're going to be farther out than you would be walking up and talking to a friend, somebody that that you know, and you're having a conversation with. Those bubbles of close personal body space will flex with the familiarity of the per. Uh, that we have with the person we're interacting with. So if you have somebody approaching you and you are uh, uncomfortable, you know, why is this guy walking up on me here at the uh, cart corral at, at the Walmart parking lot or, you know, wherever you happen to be. Uh, and you, you do the, you know, the, give them the palms out, have you, have your, your stance, you know, um, Say they're walking up there because a common ruse is to ask somebody for money so that they can get in closer and facilitate something like a, a mugging or a purse snatching or something like that. So just, just to have a scenario that everybody can relate to. Say the guy's walking up, utilizing a ruse of trying to get a dollar from you to get inside your personal space to facilitate a physical assault. And uh, you, you ask him to stay back. Hey, buddy, can you stay, could you stay, stay right there for me? Really, really making me nervous. Um, and they continue, continue to approach, and now you're not going to be nice about it. You yell at them to stop um, and to stay back, and uh, you set that boundary. You know, I, to steal to steal some uh, wording from uh, some of the, the you know Me Too movement and that sort of thing nowadays with the ladies. People utilize the term setting boundaries. What you're doing is setting boundaries. Uh, but what I don't hear a lot of is what do you do to enforce those boundaries if they're not respected? Mm -hmm. So once you get to the point like, hey, buddy, can you stay back? You're really making me nervous. And uh, you're util utilizing language. Sorry, buddy, I can't help you out. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any cash on me or things like that. And they continue to encroach. 
and you yell for them to stop, uh, and they're still displaying that behavior where they're trying to physically encroach upon you, uh, that's one of the scenarios where I would say that you would utilize pepper spray to break contact with that person that you verbally have confirmed that they have some sort of ill intent against you and that they're not stopping their encroaching behavior. Uh, and, you know, if, if you paint a good picture of that encounter, what you are articulating is a reasonable fear of physical assault or some sort of criminal behavior, uh, predation, like, uh, you know, I thought the guy was going to punch me. I thought the guy was going to mug me, you know, asked him to stop three different times. I yelled for him to stop. He's continuing to come. Uh, you know, I'm moving backwards. He's continuing to come after me, that sort of thing. I felt I had no choice but to spray him and then try to, you know, get away, call 911. Uh, so that all that, be- yeah, and all that, Chuck, I hear you're using uh, uh, movement, posture, and verbal commands to establish boundaries. Each boundary they pass uh, opens the door up wider to your justification for using this less lethal tool that you've got when you think about it you've kind of done you know the old army thing where you got somebody in the dark and they do halt who goes there so you're you're kind of doing that here you're confirming ill intent uh, through the through this procedure through this through these tactics you know sometimes it's just more open than that Uh, we had a case here and I saw another one it was kind of a kind of a similar deal a uh, lady's walking out to her car, already has her, her keychain pepper spray in her hand. The guy just runs up and uh, tries to knock her down and grab her purse. It's a straight-up physical assault. Uh, and this type of physical assault, uh, men versus women, is in not an uncommon physical or criminal assault paradigm. That's, you know, uh, dudes will be much more, criminal dudes will be much more likely to run up uh, and just try to, you know, manhandle or overpower a lady, uh, taking her purse, taking her wallet, dragging him into the bushes or whatever the case may be, right. and having that pepper spray already in our hands, instantly deploying it, has uh, interdicted more than a few of those events. When is it too late to use pepper spray? Um, <laughs> well, I, I think if you're in the middle of a ground jiu-jitsu grapple, you probably waited too long. Uh that would be a good one. It, it is best utilized when you still have some distance uh, versus actually, you know, uh, rolling around on the ground with somebody. Uh, I would tell you that one of the things that I counsel people to do, if, if you are a person who carries a gun, and not everybody does, but if you are a person who carries a gun, let's say for the sake of argument, uh, you spray the guy and... Uh, He's uh, he's screaming, and now he yells he's going to kill you, and he's starting pulling a knife out. Uh, clearly, you want to abandon the pepper spray and uh, get your gun deployed because you are you are segueing from a non-deadly force scenario to a deadly force scenario very quickly, uh, and that that is certainly within the realm of possibility. Right, and he's demonstrated that the OC spray has not taken the fight out of the fighter, and so the intention and the threat still remains. And I think this is worth touching on, you know, OC spray is not uh, a, a magic bullet, right? It doesn't uh, it, always, it make it harder for someone to attack you, but it doesn't, unless well, you're motivated, it doesn't stop the attack all the time. Truthfully, bullets aren't magic bullets. No, that's the, exactly right. The second police action shooting that I was any kind of a party to uh, very early in my career, I think this was like 88, um, 
one of our narcotics detectives shot a guy through the aorta with a 45. And I remember the uh, autopsy. Uh, I, I read the autopsy report. It left a hole in this guy's back seven-eighths of an inch across. Well, this guy, I, I, I will not describe all the events because I would have to use copious amounts of harsh language, but this dude was on his feet for probably the next three to four minutes, uh, barricaded in a room with a shotgun, screaming he's going to kill people, things like that. Um, bullets don't work uh, commonly. Yeah. So uh, what we have is a tool contextual to the amount of force we're talking about, in the police experience that works 80 to 90% of the time. Uh, I would, I would posit in a civilian uh, setting because you don't have to go lay hands on the person to put them under arrest because even, even blind people can do jujitsu. Once you touch them, they know where you are. They can hit you. They can wrestle with you, things like that, even with their eyes closed. But if you spray them and you can walk away, run away, and you don't have to lay hands on them, that's an advantage to you. Um, you know, the, the old, the joking expression, 80% of the time it works every time is actually pretty good odds. Yeah. And Don, from a, we talked about reasonableness when it comes to the use of deadly force. If you've given somebody the, the verbal commands and you've made some attempt to back up and they cross that boundary and you've nailed them with pepper spray and they still demonstrate the intent to do you harm uh, they're making your if you escalate your use of force they've given you plenty of ways to articulate why that was reasonable to a jury haven't they they, they sure have some of these encounters of course start with something that's very very ambiguous and uncertain and part of this process of the commands and the closing of the distance in spite of the demands and the disregard for your private space as that stuff begins to unfold and you have a much clearer idea that this person intends harm you are able to as Andrew Branca talks about stripping away the ambiguity there's very little question at the end of this process that you've described after you've displayed and ultimately deployed pepper spray that didn't stop the person from their uh, assault, that it's now escalated, that their intentions are clear. And some of those things that Chuck talked about, I guess, the physical capabilities, maybe the, the sex, the gender, the size, all that stuff may factor in as to whether simply because the use of the pepper spray didn't stop them may factor in, but I think you're on really solid footing at that point to, uh, because your proportional force would be in fact proportional to their increased force. Obviously if they display a deadly weapon, if someone goes for a knife or has some other weapon that can inflict serious bodily harm or, or even death, that they have now, by virtue of their own actions, raised your permissible response to the use of deadly force. And um, I, I did want to ask Chuck, since we're talking about a progression, the hypothetical being as someone's approaching and, or panhandling and you're asking them to stand back, is there an intermediate step of showing the person that you have 
pepper spray before you use it or are you usually better off when you've decided that you are threatened and you need to take some action that you just go ahead and do it. And, and I say that because we've talked in other podcasts and even a little bit now maybe about showing a weapon as opposed to actually using it. In other words, giving the person who's about to commit the assault or the battery the opportunity to back off. Well, I think if you have if you have the time and the ability, uh, legally speaking, uh, both in the civilian world and the police world, uh, it's seen as more reasonable if you give some sort of warning before you use force. Be that force, uh, you know, the 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 kind of stereotypical police stop or I'll shoot type of thing. Uh, you know, in in my job here in Kansas, by law. If I can give a warning, I'm required to give a warning. And that's in a police context. I think uh, you have, again, the stronger case. You're confirming Ill, Ill intent. If you have the ability to articulate a warning and threaten the use of a weapon, and then you're forced to use the weapon by that person's actions, I just think that goes further to your articulation. Uh, with pepper spray, might they try to, uh, if they're going to continue with an assault, uh, try to take... Uh, efforts to like hold their hand up in front of their face to to not get hit in the face with pepper spray or something like that. You do kind of give that poker hand away to them, um, and and I see there there's a, advantages and disadvantages in both sets of tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think at the at the point I leave that to my students uh, because it's going to be I won't be there for their fight. That is going to be their decision to make. So uh, just like with a deadly force decision, you know, a less than deadly force decision, what's the right force decision to make at that second uh, is going to be completely, uh, you know, theirs to make. And, and it's going to be in tune with the scenario that they find themselves in. Uh, it may be that the suspect is uh, pushing their luck faster than you can get all that done. They're like, hey, buddy, can you hold up? Oh, you know, here, now the guy's running at me. Um, and, you know, I think we're done talking at that point, uh, just as one example. Um, but I, I think it, it, you tell me from a lawyer's perspective, if you think that uh, it's easier to uh, articulate, you warned him, then you threatened him with the spray, and then he forced you to spray him anyway, that uh, if you have the opportunity to do that, that would seem to be an easier defense yet in court. Yeah, that progression, that uh, incremental escalation, if you've showed them you will use it and then you need to, yeah, that's easier to defend. What triggered that question in my mind was your earlier discussion where you're saying the effective range of most of these pepper spray incidents is for feet to eight feet. If someone's that close to you, you don't have much time to warn somebody if their response to the warning is to tackle you or to, you know, complete the physical assault. True. Uh, the, um, the better use of that time may be if you're going to warn somebody to back up or back away at the same time to create a little distance so that you still have the opportunity and the time to do it if it doesn't deter them. Yeah, well, uh, Don, Don, if I may, I'd like to add something, uh, and that is uh, the greater your skills are, uh, both in terms of managing people, in terms of using OC, 
in terms of perhaps being able to use a handgun and also your ability to deal with a surprise assault or, or let's say semi-surprise assault launched at a couple of arm's length, all of this gives you options. And so in many of these instances, uh, it kind of depends upon, okay, how is this person approaching me? Is this person running at me? Is this person standing there and there's no place for either one of us to go? Is this person walking towards me? That's one thing that might factor in. And then the other thing, again, is, uh, you know, with a guy like Chuck, I mean, this guy is prepared. He's got, you know, great people management skills. Uh, he's got the ability to deploy uh, pepper spray very quickly and efficiently. Same thing with a handgun. And also, if he were suddenly uh, somebody tried to take a punch at him, um, Chuck would be able to protect himself from that. So the more options that a concealed carrier has and the greater skills that that concealed carrier has with those tools, uh, I think really can you know, kind of improve uh, the chances for a positive outcome in a lot of these situations. Steve, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, Chuck, better than any of us, what's something that you've learned from Chuck that you want our listeners to know? Uh, one of the things that Chuck uh, first impressed me with was just his vast knowledge and his ability to, you know, convey that knowledge to the students so that you had a greater understanding of what might actually take place, uh, why this person might be in this particular place at this certain time. Uh, you know, the fact that you get your mindset correct, mindset being, okay, you're, you can go easily from general awareness to situational awareness, you know, if the circumstances dictate, to, you know, to train, to put yourself in training, uh, do force on force, do, you know, role playing. And the more that you prepare yourself, uh, the better I think that I am personally prepared to deal with a variety of situations that could go multiple ways. And for me, that was one of the reasons that I first, uh, you know, started after I, you know, I met him taking his blocks of instruction. And then I also, uh, matter of fact, I'll be, I'll be honest with you right now. My intent is to bring Chuck to an area for an OC, um, you know, in the civil sector, OC instructor course, just because he has such a vast knowledge in all these different ways that are effective in dealing with people that the majority of us uh, do not have, largely because of, one, his decision to become very educated in that arena, but also his 30-plus years of experience. Yeah, Chuck, let me ask you before we wrap things up here. You talk about training with OC spray. How does one train with OC spray? Uh, the, the gun range I go to isn't going to like it if I uh, whip out my OC spray on the range. So uh, <clears throat> that's something you can do in your own home, your backyard, something like that, because you have the inert products that you can get the exact same size can a, uh, and the stream pattern or the, the spray pattern, I should say, you know, if you want a cone, if you want a, a streamer, if you want the foam, you can buy those as an inert product. So there's everything there but the pepper. So uh, I just like the class I did Saturday, uh, we used up a bunch of different OC inert products showing 
uh, different spray patterns and effective ranges, how they react in the wind and things like that, and uh, did different drills uh, with basically a low-level force-on-force where you, you are working with and against a, another person as your, you know, quote-unquote bad guy. But if you do nothing else, uh, let's say my friend uh, Annette Evans, uh, she has marketed, um, unfortunately I'll say a lot of the stuff that's marketed to the ladies is uh, do something silly and make it pink and they think, uh, you know, it's, I think it's almost insulting behavior how some of this stuff is marketed to the ladies. Um, and, and in that vein, my friend Annette Evans, as an example, has worked with the Palm Company to, you can buy a set of live spray inert spray uh, as a set. So you can get this in, utilize the inert uh, to get familiar with the product, how it sprays, things like that, and then carry the live stuff. Just as you would if you bought a pistol, I would assume that you would get some ammo, take it to the range, see where it shoots on the target and that kind of thing before you would carry that pistol. Mm. So if you do nothing else, you could do something as simple as uh, set up an IDPA target, you know, and uh, get a pen and draw a couple of eyes on it, and then uh, uh, do some target practice on the cardboard. What uh, I do with my students is we utilize shop glasses, clear shop glasses, because if you're spraying for somebody's face and eyes, then the uh, droplets of the spray on the shop glasses are very, very easy to see whether or not they got an effective hit or not. Um, but just becoming familiar with how the, you know, how the spray works, what type of controls it has, what safety devices it has, and what's the, you know, the reach and things like that. You can explore all that with the inert and do that, you know, in your backyard or, or in your garage or whatever. And, and of course, if you wanted to, you could uh, find someone who offers training classes like you, right, Chuck? Uh, it, I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, <laughs> what, I'm leading, what I'm leading up to is I'd love for you to let uh, our audience know how they can find you online and if they were interested in a workshop, how and when you do those. So uh, I just did an instructor workshop last Saturday in Ohio, and I had uh, 14 instructors that went through that course. So uh, they're going to be teaching in Ohio. A couple of them were in Michigan. Uh, I've been out to Texas. Uh, a bunch of the KR, like Carl Wren's uh, training staff, have, have gone through my training. I'm doing a class in Denver two weeks from now both an instructor class and a user level class. And I've, I've had a lot of uh, demand for uh, like a two to four hour user level class. I've taught that at TACCON, uh, Northeast Shooters Conference. Um, I'm going to be teaching an OC block at the Girl in a Gun National Conference in, uh, in Colorado here in I think a couple of weeks. Uh, it's the end of the month. So my website is Agile Training and Consulting. Uh, it's agiletactical.com. I would have went with Agile Training, but somebody already bought that that domain name, so uh, I had to go. You know, Agile Tactical sounded kind of cool, and you know, it went with my my business name. So um, I teach I teach a bunch locally, and I do road shows quite a bit. Uh, I have been to this year. I've been to Baton Rouge, been down to Dallas going back down to Dallas again later in the year. I was just in the Dayton area in Ohio. I will be in uh, the Denver area and then in uh, Grand Junctions, Colorado at the end of the month. Um, 
and uh, I, I will be in Nashville later in the year as well. Uh, and those are specific to pepper spray classes. Awesome. Hey, Steve, before we wrap up here, is there anything we didn't cover or do you have any last-minute questions for Chuck? Uh, no, I think he has really done an excellent job. And one of the reasons that I was really keen on asking him to be a guest was that I knew how complete he was from A to Z, and I think he's pretty much demonstrated that. Yeah, Chuck, he made my 45-minute podcast an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> so uh, can, can we- could I uh, impose upon you to stretch that for another minute? I'd love it. I wanted to, I wanted you to have the final word. Unless Don has a, uh, another question, too, but then I want you to have the final word and, and let us know anything you didn't get out. Well, I want to have another minute, too, because I want to know from Chuck, since when I buy pepper spray, I'm very uninformed. I've certainly learned a lot today and really appreciate that. But I've noticed there seem to be two types of dispensing mechanisms. One is a lever that slides side to side from off to active, and then there's another one that has a flip-up cap that you slip your thumb under. Are there advantages, disadvantages to one or the other of those? The one with the uh, rotating type safety is an older design, and in my experience, they are somewhat prone to accidental discharge. Uh, and I see that, like I've, I've had calls in the police world where, uh, say, uh, there's a complaint that somebody sprayed pepper spray in the bar or sprayed pepper spray in a restaurant or something like that. And what we, uh, when we dig into that, we find that, like, it was a, a lady had pepper spray in her purse and the, uh-huh. uh, the safety worked its way off and the thing, uh, something you know, push the button and it fired off in the purse. Uh, one, one of my friends had that happen. You know, the 511 pants, they had that little like magazine pocket kind of thing on the front of the pants. Uh, a friend of mine uh, hopped into his truck and then was wondering why his leg was getting all warm and then realized that his pepper spray was discharging in that pocket all over his thigh. So uh, that was, we're going to say that was uncomfortable when the spray spread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And no problem. Uh, yeah, the, the newer type with the trapdoor type of safety where you flip up the little deal to get to the button, that's definitely the A option to go for uh, in one of the quality brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I want to involve Don in this one. <sighs> one of my maxims that I tell people in decision making is, is that if you use, if you have to use force, if you use enough force early enough correctly, you often don't have to use more force later to dig your way out of a hole. So uh, a law enforcement case and a, a non-law enforcement case I'll talk about. Uh, are you guys familiar with the Kyle Dinkeller, the Deputy Dinkeller shooting event? Um, very famous uh, video, probably happened about 20 years ago. It's been it's all over the Internet in the past. So Deputy Dinkeller pulls over a pickup truck. Gentleman gets out. He gets verbally abusive, screaming at him. He's a Vietnam veteran. Uh, runs up on the deputy. It turns into a little bit of a, a physical thing. Then the, the guy goes back to his truck, digs out an M1 carbine, um, and it turns into a running gunfight. The Deputy Dinkeller loses. And you can, unfortunately, in the video, hear him die a horrible screaming death. 
So a lot of people in the gun world, a lot of people in the police world were always uh, asking, well, why didn't he, he got, the guy went back to the truck, why didn't he shoot that guy? Why didn't he shoot that guy sooner? And that's the wrong question. When the guy ran up on him with bald fists, why did he not utilize a level of force at that point? Why did he not pepper spray him and then arm bar him into the ditch? Why did he not utilize his baton effectively and put the guy on the ground? So not utilizing the correct level of force early to interdict the problem allowed it to escalate into a gunfight. Um, Another one, the, the church shooting, was that a year or two ago that was down in Texas where the gentleman famously, there was two people shot dead and, and the, the crazy guy had the sawed-off shotgun and then uh, the fellow, I believe his name was Jack, famously made like a 15-yard headshot on the bad guy and, and stopped the attack. Uh, I see a lot of people went out and they were they were commenting on, now I, got, now I need to get a 357 SIG or now I need to... to <laughs> You know, now I need to uh, practice my 15-yard headshots. Well, what if I told you that you could have resolved that entire situation very quickly, much more safely for everybody involved with no shots fired? Wouldn't that be the better way to do business? Um, So I would posit to you, if you have a tool that short stops something turning into a deadly force event, even if it's a, a legitimate deadly force event, um, somebody like Don would tell you that if you end up in trial for a deadly force event, even if you win, you kind of lose. You know, you could be six figures in the hole on legal fees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, why would you not avail yourself of that option to avoid that drama if you could do it? Well, I don't need to explain what you just did because I simply agree with you completely. If you can short stop it, and prevent the greater harm, absolutely take those steps. Uh, I'll be glad to defend you there much, much preferably than having to defend you if you've taken a life under questionable circumstances. So absolutely, if you can shortstop something, even if it requires using force, uh, as long as that force is proportional under those circumstances under which you face them, stop it. Stop it right there. And I think, Chuck, when you say using the force early to stop you from having to use more later, part of that is as a armed defender, your yes. job is to always be looking for threats, uh, being conscious of potential threats and uh, of averting those. You have as much options, have as many as much training as you can to find a way to resolve that before resorting to lethal force? Well, one of the things I found in my life, uh, I will tell you very early on, my law enforcement training left me unimpressed and underwhelmed. So I started seeking that out for myself. And I have found it it extraordinarily useful to be able to articulate things as my own expert witness. Uh, And I have since been an expert witness in the you know, I could tell you going to uh, federal court is no, that, you know, that's, that's no fun. Uh, I have had to defend officers in a, a, a wide variety of circumstances. I've also been called in to defend civilian uses of force. Uh, I had a, a, a weird circumstance where I ended up being a defense witness on a murder case uh, on an accidental discharge shooting. Um, 
<laughs> which is a, a weird place for me to be, but it was the right place for me to be in, in that case because it was that a big overcharging. It, it was a miscarriage of justice what was going on. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted the more training you have, the better you can read a scenario, the better you can react to a scenario, and the better you can defend your decisions in a scenario. Because if you look what a reasonable man rule is, what would, you know, like I know in the reasonable officer rule is, what would an officer with similar training and experience do in that situation you found yourself in? You know, were you reasonable because other people with training and experience would have done the same thing? Well, how do you know that if you've got no training and experience? All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks talking to Don and Steve about a couple new self-defense cases that we found. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.